I think you should have a healthy idea of what it means to be a man, because if your identity, if that's an important part of your identity, again, this is where the toxic piece comes in too. It's like, if masculinity is toxic, then it's hard to have any type of pride in being like a good father or being a good man. This is a Therapy for Dads podcast. I am your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we provide content around the integration of holistic mental health, well-researched evidence-based education, and parenthood. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Therapy for Dads podcast. I'm really, really, really excited for this one. I get to actually have one of my old professors on from grad school. <laughs> and it's been a little while since I was in grad school. And we recently got reconnected and we've been having conversations. We connected way back in grad school. I always loved having him from one of my professors in my classes and learning from him and back then about his passion for men and masculinity. And I got to kind of have some fun conversations with him and interviewing him way back then. And, and just recently, now, I don't know, almost 11, 12 years later from starting grad school, we are now reconnected. And I get to have him on and talking about men and masculinity, which is totally in line with what my passion and heart is with trying to help men and fathers on this, on this show. So before we kind of totally jump in to the topic for tonight, welcome, welcome, Matt, to Therapy for Dads. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, I'm stoked to have you. I really, really am. So can you tell us just real quick, like who you are, what you do, and kind of, yeah, what's going on for Matt? Sure. My name is Matt Angler Carlson, and I'm a, I'm a professor of counseling at, at Cal State Fullerton, which is in Orange County, California, and I teach therapists. So I train therapists like Travis, <laughs> and I've been working there for over two decades prior to being an academic, I did a variety of things. I worked in uh, behavioral health. I was an elementary school counselor, and I've always had an interest in in gender. And I think in my own kind of PhD program, I got really f- much more focused on the field at the time, what we, what we call a, a new psychology of men. And as that's kind of evolved, now it's kind of viewed as the psychology of men and masculinities. And so I've been working in that field for, for close to 25 years in terms of really kind of helping what I would call allied professionals understand how to how to best help boys and men. And so for me, allied professionals really means anyone who would like to help men and boys. So that can be obviously psychologists and therapists and counselors and social workers and teachers and nurses and administrators, but anyone in those helping kind of fields and also parents too. And so oh. I've been really passionate about this field. I think initially I was interested in much more about kind of how men access support and then I became much more interested in this other piece of that, which is like, if, if men actually did access support, would they actually find people on the other end who knew how to help them? And I think certainly initially what I began to understand is not necessarily. And so a lot of kind of my work has been on that piece, primarily kind of focusing on a psychotherapy with men. So I've written a fair amount about kind of what, what is effective therapy with men. Tell us just a little bit more about what you're doing with that and more recently kind of the work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I was really lucky at a stage of my career to find other kind of scholars out there. I think like, like a lot of people in this field, like my first exposure to gender studies was not through understanding men. My, my initially it was actually kind of taking intro to feminism classes and gender studies or women's studies classes and even as a school counselor, actually, I was more comfortable working with kind of girls and their moms. And some of the interventions that I did were directly focused on that group, even though the majority of kind of the cases I had actually were, were boys. And I think at that time, I, I knew there was, you know, there was something going on with kind of boys. But at that time, this would have been like the mid 90s, there was much more of an appreciation or an awakening around the experiences of girls, primarily adolescent girls that had been, for the most part, maybe hidden and not exposed. Going into my graduate school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And you got to do research and work with with my advisor. One of the things that came out was the time she kind of said, well, when you think about your area of research, what do you see in your cases? Like, what do you see in the clients that you kind of see? And at that time, what I was really aware of was that I had a lot of men on my caseload. The men in my caseload tended to, to stay to the end. So they weren't dropping out early. And the men that I had, the majority were coming in in acute distress. And so as I began to talk more and more about their experiences, what I kind of learned was the fact is that a lot of the men who I've been, been seeing have been suffering for a really, really long time. They weren't seeking help. They, in many ways, 
were just suffering in silence. So I'd mm. ask questions around like how long you've been experiencing depression or feeling this way. And it wasn't weeks or months, it was years. So I got really interested in that. And then other thing I noticed was that I really enjoyed the work, frankly, like it's in a sense, it wasn't very hard for me. Like I could build really good connections with my clients. And so that passion really got kind of created. And so I was voracious in learning everything I could possibly learn uh, about the field. I probably exhausted interlibrary loan at, at Penn State University. <laughs> I read everything I could, but not just from psychology. I read anthropology. I read gender studies. I read sociology. I read family studies. I read anything I could find that I was out there. And it became just a really focus on on scholarship. Like what does the research say that we we know about men and and mental health? And kind of early in my career, about, about 20 years ago, one of the things I began to be aware of too is I was getting a little disillusioned with kind of what I was seeing, mm. meaning that as I would read the research and look at it, what I was aware was that the psychology of men was actually not the psychology of mental health. It was the psychology of mental illness. It was really a cataloging of all the things that were going wrong in men's lives. And as I read that research, I began to wonder, you know, essentially, could I find myself in the research? Could I find my friends in the research? Were there actually other elements of being a man in kind of Western society that actually had virtue and strength and honor and, and frankly, health, mm -hmm. right? And so my other colleagues and I began to have that, those conversations. And from that came this recognition of what, what initially was called positive masculinity, so a colleague of mine, Mark Caselica, at the time, we kind of created that term, which at the time, I, th I think we were aware that it was striking a chord with other kind of scholars and kind of early researchers, mainly because, again, there wasn't this notion of what healthy was. Like, mm. we could tell kind of male client what not to do, but we didn't have much of an idea of kind of telling them what they should be doing. That was actually related to their lives. And so, um, yeah. so over time, that has been something that has become a bigger focus, I think now I refer to it as, as, as kind of positive masculinities to be much more inclusive and aware of the variations of masculinities that, that people experience. And I'm really interested in what we call healthy boyhood, too. Mm -hmm. So I've spent probably the past five years focusing more on that, primarily in education settings. And and you've done a, a tremendous amount of work in this area, in this field. And that's a big reason I wanted you on is to really talk about the research and the science that you're seeing and someone who's really who's really in it and doing the work. Because something that I see a lot of out there on social media, and maybe this was going around when you first started this, I don't know, because I wasn't aware of it when you probably started doing this, because I was a lot, little younger then. But at least in the past few years, when I've been on social media and seeing these things, there's a lot of this I think talk of this term toxic masculinity and a lot of this, you know, how patriarchy has impacted men and these things. And, and, I, and these are things that people are recognizing. And the sense I get when we talk about these things, toxic masculinity, I think it sounds similar to what you're getting at, that we kind of know what to tell men, not what not to do. Like, don't be this, don't be these things. These things clearly are not helpful. These are, you know, traits that aren't really helpful to you or your community, but still, it, I think it still stops there, even to this day, even on social media. It's like, well, don't do this. Don't be this person. Or it flips it and say, well, do these things. Just feel more. Just, it'll be kind of this quick answer of just be, you know, and we've had this conversation offline a little bit of like, well, just feel more, just do the, you know, just do the work. And I think there's still, I think there's a big, my opinion, I think there's a big ravine, so to speak, between what not to do and then like, we'll just do these things. It's like this this missing bridge and link between the two. And so I still, I, in a way, I feel like it's still doing a, the kind of similar things to some men that they say, don't be like this, don't be this toxic thing, you know, don't have this trait of you. So I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. When you, when you hear the word toxic masculinity, like, what do you think about that? Like what what comes to mind for everything you've been doing and all the research? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot in what you kind of said, and I think in in some ways, like what I did mention is, you know, I also work with with the mental health app, Mental, which is the first mental health app focused on men, and at our core mission is a awareness of that that there are kind of these two narratives I think for society that men kind of pick up, which is one is like you know eat your veggies kind of thing, mm -hmm. and the other one is kind of like feel everything. Right. And there's not like a middle ground. And I think that with with mental, again, we're really looking at that third way. Like there, there's mm -hmm. a middle ground in there, too. Right. Yeah. And in some ways, like, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this much, much more. But, you know, men's health, 
and to be a healthy person, right? But particularly for men in particular, it's about adaptability and this ability to respond to a situation that is in front of you. And the reason why that is important for men is because men tend to be socialized to kind of adopt these rigid stereotypes about what it means to be a man. And I'm sure we'll get go more into that around, but but that's kind of a really critical thing is that if if we are thinking about how we actually want to help kind of men or boys kind of be healthy, like A, you have to be, you have to engage them and not alienate them. And I'm not so sure kind of toxic masculinity language really does that, right? And I and I think it's also really careful to look at like, again, what are you actually kind of saying? So mm-hmm. I don't use the term toxic, toxic masculinity. It doesn't tend to appear in writing that I use. And, and actually most academics don't use it. It actually predates positive masculinity. It's a term from the late 70s. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it is there, but it's not something that I t- tend to use. But, but when I hear that, what I think we're, you know, what we're talking about often with, with toxic masculinity are our kind of interpersonal ways in which kind of kind of men and maybe greater society, whether you're you're in a patriarchal society, has encouraged men to behave, mm. and that interpersonal way leads to things like de- mm. and, and violence and aggression and actually dominance over others as a mm. as a value, right? Mm. And so, and again, when we talk about that, we certainly have extremes that we can mm. look at that that are real things, and I think it's important to call things what they are. But at the same time, it's like Again, does that engage men, you know, and it, is that actually like that interpersonal kind of piece in terms of kind of whether it's between men and women or between men and other humans or between between men and other men, right? Because we also mm-hmm. know that the toxic kind of traits or toxic actions that also happen actually between men, right? Mm-hmm. But what I would say is like when I think about men's health or I think about kind of how we're going to help guys be healthy, you know, the reality is, is is a reason why men die five years sooner than than women in the United States, right? Mm, but it's yeah. not the only reason why. And yeah. I and I think when I think about it that way, like I think I've used this phrase with you before. I actually use this phrase called toxin instead of toxic. So T O X I N toxic mm. masculinity, which are the small things that men pick up and the small ways that men are socialized, which impacts their health behaviors, which is directly why actually we see health disparities exist in men. And these are the and these are things where I think we also ought to be giving attention as well. So I think what ends up happening is conversation about toxic masculinity become this massive rock, yeah. And it actually overshadows kind of what I think is more helpful advice for the majority of men on how to how to be healthier and happier. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean the term you you use it because you see it as just yeah this big rock a barrier. So men hear it and then it. It seems to not really engage is what I'm hearing is what you're seeing. It's not really engaging men to actually make a difference or change. Yeah. Is that the, yeah. 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 And I think it's also like, I mean, if it is interesting, right. I think that, that we, if I say to you, like, like define toxic masculinity or what does that mean to you? Right. Mm. I think you could give me a few things and say, this, this is what I think it means. Right. And if I said, what does healthy masculinity mean to you? You might struggle. Right. And meaning, and society would struggle. Like we actually don't have a, operational right. definition of healthy masculinities. Right. right. I'm not really seeing anyone else pointing <laughs> really to, okay, now what? So we know yeah. it's not good. We know it's not healthy, but okay. Like you yeah. said, what, what, well, what is healthy, positive masculinity? What does it actually look like? And I think people do struggle to define it or if they do, it's kind of convoluted or yeah. okay, how do we then yeah. actually, or how do we get maybe from this quote unquote toxic place? And how do we then walk the path to a place of healing and recovery, which is a big heart of mine too, is, well, how do we, how do we help men equip them? And first, and I always say this, I think with those men who are stuck in there, and you tell me what if this fits, but I think a piece that I see missing all the time is that we're not approaching these men with genuine curiosity and empathy and getting to know their story and yeah. why they're there. It's more of just stop it, you're bad, you're wrong, you're the problem. I mean, that's I mean, I'm, and I'm overgeneralizing here when people say this, because yeah. people will say we get it, but it's like we get it, but but change. It's like this quick, like, get it, but like flip the switch. I mean, that's my sense, my interpretation when I'm hearing people say it. It's like, we get it, just, but be different, you know, just, you know, and I think we're still missing that, (laughs) that middle piece of, and I, and I think maybe some of those men might even get stuck too, who are, because they're just expected just to flip on a dime. And and I I don't, I think it's negating some of the really, the real lived experience and the time it takes and the patience and the empathy and the curiosity and, the time it takes to actually help walk alongside them 
and recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's like, again, like this notion of, and, and again, it's not to, not to deny that, that it's not a thing, right? Like I think, like I said before, it's important to name what things are. Mm. Right. And I think when we, you know, and I do think when we look at kind of aspects of male behavior, right. Like we look at men beha- male behavior, we know that men are responsible, right. For the majority of homicides, we know that men are responsible die by suicide. We know that men engage in, they're, they're both engaged in and are victims of a violence at a higher rate. Mm. We know that men are more likely, like they're the main cause of spreading STDs. We know men are the like the main cause of automobile accidents. Like we can look at these things that are very unhealthy health behaviors. Mm. And it's important to kind of, kind of really point those things out. Right. At the same time, I think you, we have to realize that that awareness that comes out of kind of talking about toxic masculinity as a society, right comes out of, again, a absolute recognition that a lot of what we're talking about is power imbalance, mm. right? And talking about real things that happen, right? But there's a way in which toxic masculinity also can become all masculinity. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that, that in the absence of that, it's very hard for a guy to kind of figure out how to have a good self, sense of self if it's viewed as kind of being so negative all the time. Right. Mm. Meaning that, like, I think in therapy, for example, I think when guys come into therapy and they come to seek help, what they're expecting actually is for the therapist to say to them, okay, tell me what's going wrong in your life. Right. And I'll tell you, most guys, you know, essentially hang their head down and then confess or say, like, let me tell you about all that stuff going wrong in my life. And we've seen research that suggests a better approach is to kind of say is where would you like to be in your life? You know, like, if, I mean, think about it. If, if, if the precursor for engaging in something is like, let's just start by telling me all the things you're ashamed of. Right. Yeah. And, you know, your engagement is quite low at that point. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, so I think that piece around that is like figuring out like, you know, what message are we actually sending to, to men or actually young men in terms of how do we help them navigate then a culture to a more healthy understanding of what it means to be male. Hmm. I like that. And so with that said, that as term of not liking to use it because of, in, in one hand, naming the unhealth is important. Like you said, like naming the really, the, the reality and, the, and some of the, the facts and the data that we're seeing that there is, a re, there's some, there's some truths and realities to this. And, and at the same time, knowing that how that term can be used and not really make a change, but just look at just the negativity of it and how I think it can maybe be blanketed as all masculinity. And in a way it's kind of a, I feel like it's a slippery slope word in a way, kind of like a, it's too sticky. And so with that said, if we were to pivot, what, what, what do we do? Like if we were pivot over to what the work you're, you've been doing and have been seeing that, okay, that this is not really that helpful a word of engagement, not really helping pave the way. And also society at large doesn't really have an answer for these men other than just pointing out, you know, how bad have you been? You know, that, that first example you gave, tell me your, how you failed type of a thing and what's broken. So what would you do if you're going to flip it? Like what does, what does Matt see as laying out and working with one, how do we engage men more effectively? You know, and two, well, what is actually healthy, positive masculinity? Like how do we actually begin to identify this so we can actually have a, a goal, a roadmap, a place to head to, toward, like a destination, so we have an idea of what we're actually wanting to achieve? Yeah, I mean, it's like those are two very big questions. You know, this, this but, but, I, but I think as a, you know, someone who works with people who are helpers, right? I think, you know, what we what I look at around that is like, again, do you understand kind of men or males, boys, those who identify as male, like, do you have an understanding or maybe an appreciation of their experience, right? And are you able to kind of adapt in a way, adapt, you know, your your service delivery in a way that is going to, in a way, accommodate kind of where they are? Actually, mm-hmm. can you meet them where they are, as opposed to bringing them over to where we are? Like, you know, I'm, I train therapists, I live in the world of emotions, right? And, and, and I think emotions are great. Right. But I also know that that is not the majority of people. Right. And and that expressing emotions, you know, can be viewed as shameful or it can Mm. be viewed as kind of a very scary thing for many people. So if we're if we're just selling therapy as a place where you're going to share emotions, a lot of guys will kind of say, you know, or again, this notion here that this recognition that, you know, guys do have emotions and actually guys share emotions in lots of ways. Right. 
it just may not be the preferred way that the helping professions tend to ask for, right? Can so, can you speak helping, more about a little bit about that? Like, give an example. Sure, I, I think in some ways, helping professions privilege this notion of sharing emotions in the moment. So it's actually feeling them in the moment. So if you're working with me, it's me actually like seeing my tears like coming out of my eyes or seeing that those things kind of in the performative kind of kind of way. But the reality is that I can express emotions to you in a lot of different ways. I can express emotion in my body, right? So I can have, have, have like a somatic experience happening within my body in which I'm feeling things within. I can express kind of my emotions through movement. I can express my, my emotions through, through writing, right? I can mm-hmm. write things down and express it too. And so this notion of kind of how we express, right? is important when we think about guys, because I think that a lot of men, you know, and again, I think boys and male adolescents too, like, you know, our society doesn't necessarily teach them or show them in a way that expressing emotions is helpful. Right. And I think what, and so we wonder kind of why is it that, that adult men, for example, don't want to express certain, certain tender emotions. Sometimes it's because they don't see the point, you know, they've, they've been raised in a way because what we do know about emotionality is that, expressing emotions are really helpful when they're validated back. Right. Right. So I know validated back is a very therapist kind of term, but, but it's, this is important for parents, like really important for parents to understand is that when your child expresses an an emotion, like what you need to do in that moment is essentially mirror it back. Right. Mm. You know, and, and say you're, you're feeling this, you know, you're feeling sad because it's kind of happened, you know, or, you know, if, if what's called for with a child is a hug, it's a real hug that has tenderness with it, right? Mm. What's not called for is when someone feels something and they're told, don't feel that way, right. or you shouldn't feel that way, or, and a lot of the messages that boys learn is essentially toughing, being being tough, or, or kind of, you know, I remember as a kid feeling feelings and being told to walk it off, right? Like, mm. you know, be tough and walk it off is not validation, right? you know, and for young you know, again, if what you've learned is that is what you learn is that when I, I express emotions and they're not feeling that it is back to me, what I learn essentially is that I shouldn't be expressing these. And I learned to feel shame for expressing my emotions. Yeah. And I think that, that the reality is, is that's a lot of guys don't understand. Like, again, it's, you know, it's really clear here too, is that, you know, boys and adolescents and adult men have the same capacity to, to express emotions and girls and adolescent girls and women, right? So it's not a, not a capacity, it's not a biological difference that men can express their emotions, right? But it, emotions are viewed as a contextual piece in which there's a context in which they occur. And so, again, a lot of men, when it comes to emotionality, if they think, if I go to therapy and have to, have to express my emotions, well, why would I want to do that? Right. I right. just feel worse. <laughs> yeah, I just feel worse. And, and that's often what is told to them, maybe with someone who maybe isn't as sensitive to the journey of understanding that. It's like, well, yeah. we just need to feel and try to pull it. And so that could be, yeah. and what I'm positing and some stuff I'm looking into my own personal research and, and doing things is seeing, I think a lot of men are stuck in a kind of sort of fight or flight or dorsal vagal shutdown state when they get asked about emotions, they just go into survival mode by yeah. getting aggressive or defensive or shutting down because that's what they did when, or what they had to do when they were, when they had to walk it off. I had to numb that. I had to disassociate, I had to numb, yeah. I had to become angry or aggressive or fight back. Right. I mean, so they learned these ways of coping. And so when they're asked to feel emotions, I think their nervous system just kicks on. I'm like, that's a threat. Why would I do that? That's a waste of time. It's useless. Nothing good happens. Let me avoid this. Yeah. And so we can keep pushing them to share, 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 share emotions. And then they're just going to keep doing this because why, yeah. why, why would I go there? I've already yeah. done that. I've been there, done that numerous times and it doesn't work out for me. And so what are some things you found helpful with engaging men in therapy? Because if, if we're just talking, you know, as the clinicians or even, you know, men listening to this podcast, if you've been to therapy and you're not ready in that place, you know, you probably felt that too. So what, how can we as clinicians or what's some ways they can look like, how can we reach them more effectively if they're not in the space yet to just feel? And you, you, you kind of laid out some other ways that men are expressing yeah. it through movement, yeah. writing. What are some things that you found successful? Sure. Like practically sure. speaking. And let me just also make a caveat here is that uh, again, sure. and, and there are, I, and there are many, many men who have no problem feeling whatsoever and have no problem expressing their emotions Holy. and it's great. And, you know, but I think in general as society, right, there is tends to be an element around restrictive emotionality for men. So again, and I think that that is, it is like a, it's a mist on society that floats down and before adults even realize it, they have un, you know, unchecked biases around kind of the way we think boys and girls and so-and-so are supposed to behave and through our institutions and through our different ways, th- these subtle messages come out, 
right? Mm-hmm. And it has ramifications, right? It has ramifications for kind of how we raise young men. So, but to your other point in terms of how we engage, I think one thing to be aware of is that, you know, I think one thing you're thinking about when you work with, with men in a clinical setting is you're trying to get them to come back. So one of the goals of, of your first session is get them to session two, like seriously, like in, in, and in doing so, that means is you may have to work a little harder to hook them in. Mm. So it's, so it's not uncommon that the therapist might self-disclose a bit more in that first session to engage. And again, how you self-disclose is more about, about normalizing kind of what is happening there. But there's a bit of a personality kind of component, like in which you might do a bit more chit chat as a, as a way to kind of loosen some of that initial anxiety. I think, you know, good therapy tends to be about making, making a good relationship and being very clear about the, um, the tasks and the goals as well. Mm-hmm. So talk to, talk to the male kind of client, understand kind of why he's there, help understand kind of if he works with you, what the outcome could possibly be and give him something to hold on to. Like we always want to engage hope around that too, but help understand that coming back could lead to some good things. Right. Hmm. But there's ways in which I think we, as therapists, I think you might have to lean a bit more into the client than, than usual. Right. Because it may be that a lot of male clients who have been there for the first time have some expectations in terms of how they think therapy is supposed to be. And in general that it, maybe it's not for them. Yeah. I see the lot and from other, my personally, as well as working with hearing stories from other clinicians, especially when they come with a couple, right. It's often a, a demand, you know, obviously, and I know the typically the female partner has very valid reasons as to why they're there, right? Gen, gen, and I'm generalizing this, right? This is not every man, like you said, but generally, and they're coming in kind of as a, there's been some type of, you have to do this, otherwise, here's the ramifications. And so they're coming in a lot of times reluctantly, because it's like, well, I don't want to lose this, so I'm going to come in. And so they're already on the defensive. And then if we don't engage them, I could see like, why would I, why would I do this? Because I think yeah. a lot of those men I've seen, they come in already with an expectation or preconceived notion that, you're just going to want to make me to quote unquote feel you're just going to yeah. gang up on me, you know, essentially. Yeah. And I've heard that said numerous times. I feel like I'm going to be ganged up on. I'm not going to actually be heard. Why would I do that? It seems pointless. And I think part of it could be as clinicians, we, and I'm putting myself in that category as clinicians as a whole, that we might need to grow a bit and reaching in with where they are, meeting where they are at. And yeah. I see that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that most people, when they seek help, you know, what they're, when they arrive, what they're asking themselves is, is this a place for me, right? Like, is this a place for me? And there are a lot of reasons and a lot of things that guys may see that kind of says, no, like this isn't a place for me, you know? And part of it is, of course, there is a stigma and there is a, a way in which kind of therapy can be viewed as a weakness or as a failure for guys, right? That mm. they couldn't handle it on their own. They have that other kind of roots. So therapy may not be like the number one choice that guys kind of have. That being said, like, I think when guys engage in therapy, a lot of them love it. That once, once they get hooked, some guys will never leave, you know, and there's something about that, that I think that if you engage in a way and they feel like they're going to be seen, right, maybe for who they are and not judged for who they are, then maybe they're more willing, willing to engage. And so one of the things I think we've talked about before is like, you know, engaging in story, engaging in narrative, understanding kind of what he, because I think guys have a lot of stories that don't get told. They edit themselves a lot and they particularly edit the kind of tender stories around that mm-hmm. because society doesn't encourage those stories to be told. Yeah. Or they're not even asked. Like you said, they're not, not even encouraged. Just play, you know, not even asked. And we have a mutual friend that just told me this and he said, you know, he recently had a baby and, you know, he said in their postpartum, just in this reality, I have other friends have had babies recently. They're not even asked how they're doing, how they're doing in the postpartum yeah. checkup. It's just not even on the, the grid or framework. And what we know is, you know, one out of 10 men experience postpartum depression. But it's clearly in the evidence and the data and the research that we're seeing. We actually have a few mutual friends that know this, that, that are doing research on this in this field. And, yeah. and I have friends that we, I'm like, did you get asked? So we now ask each other, were you asked? No, I wasn't. It's just, so it, there's, there's almost like an absence. It's like, I think it's pat, like farther back than encouragement. It's just, it's just not even, it's non-existent. Whether you almost lost your wife in an emergency birth, you know, almost lost your kid or, you know, or your baby's in the NICU or they're not, they're not asked how they're doing. Now, every now and then, I'm saying most of the time they're not, but every now and then there's probably someone who's got their head on, understands, and it's like, I need to check on dad. But that is definitely not the norm um, to this day. And those stigmas, to this day, I work with men coming to my office, those things are still very much present for them. 
what we want to do is get them help way earlier, you know, way before that point. But now they're coming in because of all those stigmas and barriers and not encouraged to share these stories or not even close to being asked or shamed for doing it, that they come in usually in these big crisis moments. And that's hard. It's harder. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is if we think about just the whole kind of range of parenthood, like that whole kind of kind of journey, like even before birth, right? Like, I think that we know that whether you're talking about about fertility, where you're talking about about miscarriage, you know, and in that sense, like, I think expectant fathers, right, or fathers who, who want to be, you know, often don't have a much of a outlet in terms of how to express their kind of feelings in terms of how they're managing that right mm-hmm. and as someone who's been through that before myself with my children i found myself very isolated too you know and one of the things i just kind of figured out at some point was like i'm just gonna start talking about it and as i began to talk about it with some of my other friends i realized oh they had those experiences too but it took like a very conscious decision for me to kind of talk about it mm-hmm. and what i was going through to get support around that and i think you know you know, I think there is an epidemic of, of, you know, when we don't include men in that process or see them, it also gives them an excuse to not be a part of it. And that not showing up behavior that a lot of kind of to be fathers and fathers experience as well, I think could also could be potentially curbed a bit if they were invited in more to that process and made to feel a part of it with that responsibility too. You know, and I think it's, I think part of what happens is you end up getting then this bigger kind of struggle that kind of happens, which is, you know, if men are not noticed as much or dads aren't noticed as much in that process, you know, we also realize that what kicks in sometimes is for a lot of men, it's feelings of responsibility and, and being a provider. So work in providing then takes a certain type of, of, of a priority in one's life. We mm-hmm. know that and there's a lot of good things that happen to men when they become dads, right? But, you know, other things kind of happen is they also begin to lose a lot of their friends and social support networks, you know. And so we be- begin to see this kind of path in which men become d- to be disengaged from themselves and others. You know, so I think there's a lot in that in terms of how, you know, and, I th- and, and we're seeing changes in that. Like, I think we're seeing, seeing generational changes. And I think, you know, for sure, like the life that my dad experienced when he had me is different than the life that I had when I had my son. And we know that the kind of things like stay-at-home fathers like those are kind of each year kind of going up and we're you know but the ways in which we engage in that process around kind of being a dad again there's some opportunities in there and i think for parents in general of course you know expectations have never been higher <laughs> for parents to be everything you know yeah in a very complicated world but i think it is like i think the work you're doing and just giving voice for for dads about like you know you have reactions and you have emotional reactions here and you have perspectives and you have experiences and you have stories that are valid is critical yeah Yeah. oh thank you and now for a short break so if you're looking for ways to support the show and my youtube channel head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads there you can make a one-time donation or join the monthly subscription service to support all that i'm doing at the intersection of fatherhood and mental health and all the proceeds go right back into all the work that i'm doing into production into continue to grow the show to bring on new guests so again head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads thanks and let's get back to the show and yeah i I think it's it's it is critical which is why i'm doing it and we had we had some infertility issues too along the way and i remember talking about for the first time and didn't talk about for a long time even as a trained clinician at the time i think it was just finished grad school took us six years to get pregnant and i mean finally our first kid but I remember that first few years, I just don't talk. I mean, and I was a clinician. Even I, I think, got into some of that like stuff in my own of just keep, just, just keep going. Like, just avoid it. Just, you know, I'll deal with it later. And then I remember talking about it and realized, actually, this is more common than it's than you think. But it can be yeah. so isolating. I think a lot of men just don't, and they just stay, like you said, they stay isolated. And then these things just naturally begin to get them farther and farther away from, I think, community and relationship, which is what a lot of men need is relationship yeah. and community and support and encouragement and as well as being challenged in a way that's like an effect, like a healthy challenge, right? That I think of a good coach, right? Who's challenging you to become better and push, not shaming or not that type of coach who's <laughs> tearing you down, but kind of in a way that's speaking to the truth of who you are, but pushing yeah. you, you know? Yeah. And, and that I think a lot of men also react really well to that, that kind of push, they could rise to the occasion and really, really do well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, mean, I think that's like, 
you know, just in some of the work I'm doing now, it's like that voice is, I would, I would call empathic firmness, like in a way like that's the, you know, that's the coach everyone, everyone kind of wish they had, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching Friday night lights with my daughter, you know, oh, which is yeah. like, but that coach here, Eric Taylor, right. Is yeah, he's yeah. empathic firmness. Right. Yeah. He is. Um, <laughs> and it's a, and it's a beautiful thing to kind of see. And I think that in some ways, like a good coach for so many men mm. is a surrogate father. Right. Totally. Totally. Right. right. Yeah. Cause that's kind of what they're looking for in a dad in a way is that kind of empathic for that connection, but firm, you know, yeah. and challenge. Yeah. 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 And there's elements around that. I mean, I think like one of the things even talking about kind of, kind of fathers too, is like, you know, being a father exists in a society which has a script, hmm. right? There's, there's notions in terms of kind of roles people are supposed to kind of play. And I think when, you know, fathers again, or men in general, like one of the things we know is that they, they tend to at times not understand what their needs are, right. Or they are uncertain if they can express their kind of needs, they're more likely to kind of, you know, essentially express who they are by doing things for their people. Right. And they're encouraged to, to, to kind of mask weakness. Right. Mm. So we wonder what happens to, to dads again, who maybe aren't having a great experience psychologically or really struggling with kind of being a new parent or maybe struggling with being a parent for a second time or third time or fourth time, you know, in a way you, you treat it by, by performing, by giving and doing for other people, right? What is not happening is a connection in which kind of what's happening for you is being shared outwardly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an absolute struggle. Mm. Well, I think that, like you said earlier, might be that struggling and suffering in silence, right? It's they keep yeah. it in yeah. and they keep it contained and compartmentalized. And I've worked with a lot of men that they come in finally and they just can't keep it contained anymore. They've yeah. been keeping it in for years, 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 years. Yeah. And then finally it's just like it breaks yeah. and they suffer yeah. alone in silence because again, they don't, it goes back to that, just the narrative and kind of what the expectations and what masculinity should look like. I mean, it's interesting that some of the data suggests that again, regardless of the economic situation, right? So regardless if one has a partner and if the partner is the breadwinner or in terms of, or brings home more money, regardless of the actual situation on the ground, men still find incredible value in being, being a good provider, right? Regardless, again, like regardless of the situation, because then the reality is, is that if you're in a couple, most couples are dual income in some capacity at this point. And I think, and what makes that really interesting is, is that providing becomes, again, that's a script, right? Mm. And, and what does society tell men in general, right? Be a provider, right? Mm. To not show emotions, to not, not show affection between men, and essentially that anger is, is a funnel emotion, right? Mm. So anger and aggression are okay. Right. And so we absolutely know that that is the kind of overarching kind of script. We also know that most men don't subscribe to it. <laughs> okay. So let, like, and the, again, that gets into this piece around, like, when we think of what masculinity is, it's actually masculinities, right? It's IES. Mm. There are multiple forms of what it means to be a man, but the assumption is, and even most guys who don't subscribe to it, they believe that's what they ought to be, you know? So like, I don't consider myself a terribly traditional man. Right. But I do feel certain twinges when I feel like I violated a code in terms of how men are mm. supposed to be, even right. though I know it's not me. Right. Cause that's kind of like this thing that's kind of in the background due to society. What you've been taught is like, here's the code and this is what you must follow. And even though, you know, you follow, you know, yep. maybe that it's a little broader. Yeah. But then as soon yeah. as you cross one of those lines, like, Oh, it's an automatic, like, Need your, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so we, we, I know we asked this question a while ago, but you know, this notion of kind of what is it, what does it mean to be healthy? Mm -hmm. Like what we, what we really know is that healthy is adaptability. Okay. So, and I think this is actually kind of important because I think there's some lots of misunderstandings about elements of kind of research that kind of scholars do on masculinity, which is, is that, you know, it's not unhealthy to be a traditional man. Okay. It's not, it's, it's unhealthy to be traditional in a rigid way though, hmm. right? In the, in the same sense that in some ways, most rigidity is unhealthy, okay? Yeah. And so, and the data here is actually quite clear. Like the data that exists, there's 45 plus years of research hmm. that we know that, that generally speaking, you know, men who reject rigid conceptualizations of masculinity, that is kind of steeped in sex and ideologies are healthier in nearly every way than men who endorse those kinds of beliefs, hmm. right? And the data is really clear about that. So again, but it's, it's, 
because these are operational definitions sometimes that academics kind of use, it gets translated incorrectly, Mm. you know, but, but when I think about that, like as a parent, again, adaptability, what adaptability means is that essentially you respond to what the situation needs. So if the situation is that I'm feeling unhappy or I'm hurt by something, then the adaptive piece is to share the emotion, for example, Mm. or if the reality is, is I'm in trouble and I need some assistance, I ask for help. Right. Mm. This would be not in that certain that example, a rigidness traditional masculinity. Because you said traditional masculinity is not bad. I think that's a I think for a lot of the social media stuff out there, Absolutely. They, they're gonna gasp at that, I think. Yeah. Like what? Traditional I I I'm almost imagining the gasps happening. Um because well, I, think, I mean just <laughs> I'll tell you you know why? Because it's repeated consistently. Right. It was repeated twice last week in New York Times magazine and it's and it's a it it was a it was a miscitation. Ah, uh, they, they didn't even cite the right article. But on top of that, like, <laughs> but it's actually a it's a it's a it's a misunderstanding. Yeah, that people kind of have, and it's repeated again and again and again, right? And it's a way of actually creating a polarized notion of kind of like the left and the right mm. around the way that men should be. Yeah, right. And it's a, yeah. it actually mirrors actually mirrors political ideology. Uh, Ryan McDermott, who's a psychologist at at University of South Alabama has done research on this and it can kind of show you how that plays out. But, you know, and so what happens, I know we're off, off tangent here a little bit, but what happens when we That's have fun. conversations and then when our conversations around like masculinities, for example, or healthy masculinities, or what does it mean to be a man when they begin to kind of then mirror the same arguments we're having in larger society about the left and the right and liberal and conservative and this or that, the same outcomes occur, like the same outcomes occur, which leads to a stalemate. Right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, I don't care if you're red or blue or conservative or liberal or whatever, you know, there are some things that we can't agree on. Right. And we can agree that we would like men to be healthier. We would like men to not die by suicide at, a, at, at such an incredible ratio. Right. Right. And yeah. we would like men to be less engaged in violence in terms of committing it and being victims. Right. And if you can't agree on that, then something is really wrong. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. If we can, yeah. And it's a great place to start on. This is what we agree on as healthier men. And, you know, in a way, as, as we have healthier men in our society and we yeah. help them, that, that helps all of society. That helps yeah. women, children, everything, you know, across yeah. ages, ethnicities, gender, everything, right? Because we're, then we're all helping each other. And, and so going back to that, I, I think that's something that people are going to gas. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, and that's and the reason why you want is because you're in the research, reading the research, and you can see, wow, this is being misrepresented and miscited and not even the right article. Yeah. But it's but you're seeing repeated at, in big magazines and articles of saying these things. And that's, I think, something that's hard because the average reader seeing these things, they just, they see it, right? They see the headline, they see these things. And so it becomes just part of you know, language used and how we make these claims. But I think that that word you said makes a lot of sense, adaptability, and that traditional masculinity is good as long as it's adaptable and not rigid, because rigid in that first the examples you gave, if what does the situation call for? If it calls for expressing emotion, well, rigid masculinity would be this, like that, what, what we think of. No, we're going to shut that down and, and shame it or don't cry. You know, that thing. I said, well, I'm not going to feel it. Or if it calls for a hug, right? And like, well, you're not getting a hug, right? If I'm that rigidness. Yeah. But if I'm adaptable saying, well, actually, what does this really need? Oh, it needs emotional expression, needs a hug, needs validation, needs something else. Yeah. It even comes down to just things like, like when we think about it, about help seeking, for example, right? Help seeking isn't just going to see a therapist, right? Right. It can be something, it, it can start with something as simple as, just asking for freaking directions at the gas station, right? Yeah. But it also goes to things like going to the doctor, doing mm. uh, doing, a, doing a regular checkup. I mean, like I talked to a lot of my friends who will say like, gosh, I wish my dad would just go to the doctor. Like, we can't get him to go to the doctor, right? And data suggests like men are, they're less likely to have health insurance, they're less likely to go to the doctor. They, I mean, like I know in my class, like part of the class, I read like this big list of kind of things that are health behaviors, right? And when it comes to kind of help seeking, it's things like that. It's like help seeking is going for for checkups and going for exams and actually mm-hmm. treating yourself when you're sick, right? Yeah. And that rigidity again is to is to not ask for help. Right. And, and that so would fall like, into the unhealthy kind of the the socialization pieces of why men like men men look like this, right? Don't ask for help, don't have emotions, right? That's the, yeah. the thing that we we're, we're taught 
And so not asking for help again, because that's showing weakness, showing that you're vulnerable, showing that you're not strong, showing that you're not all these things. That's that thing that you feel that like gut check of like, oh, wait, did I do that? Because <laughs> it's yeah. it's in me yeah. too sometimes because that's, I had that socialization piece too on the sports field growing yep. up with kids in yep. my class with, now I had also some good representations of men not doing that to me who were yep. very empathetic and caring and patient and all these things. But that other stuff was very much true. And I remember yeah. asking myself, can I say this? Should I say this? Am I going to get made fun of? You know, because I remember growing up, it's like, is it safe to say this here? No, because I said it last time. And those kids, so you learn to adapt. Well, you learn to become rigid because that's how you survive in a way. Yeah. I think it forces yeah. you to become this to survive. Yeah. Or the notion here is that like, and this is not my terminology, it's other people, but essentially gender can become, become a straitjacket for men, mm. right? Essentially gender becomes a straitjacket because you engage in what's called gender role conflict, which is okay. So gender role conflict is the is is by James O'Neill, University of of Connecticut. It's the most researched concept in psychology of masculinities at this point. Probably three hundred plus studies. Wow. And what gender role conflict essentially says is that men learn at a young age that that when they violate gender role expectations, that there is a cost, right? So men learn to overconform, right? Overconform to not not cross those, those lines. Right. Mm. But the reality of course is that you can't. Right. So if, if what I've learned is that you don't show emotions or tender emotions. Right. So like, again, like, and I always, I always try to clarify that because anger is an emotion. Right. And a lot of guys mm. have no problem expressing anger. So um, sure. Cause it's not tender. It's a, it's just masking something else. But like, if yeah. I learn I'm not allowed to cry, for example, and when I cry, I'm teased or shamed or, mm-hmm. or whatever. So I, I'm never going to cry. That's what I say. Well, guess what? You're human. Human beings cry because when the situation arrives, right, right. you engage in, 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 what call it, in what's called gender role conflict, right, in which you mm. don't line up with the expectation. And so, and the data is really clear that men who are high in gender role conflict, right, do experience the things such as kind of depression, anxiety, and addiction and across the board, like all the dark mm. side masculinity stuff. And, right. and that being said, like, that's what I learned 20 some years ago, I learned all about that stuff and which also led me to want to learn about more healthy things. But you also have to understand kind of that piece too. You have to understand yeah. kind of why are men drawn to overconforming and why does is gender use like a straight jacket in that way? Yeah. yeah, it's a good image. And I think, you know, it's a good image. It makes sense. You, you think about it. Yeah, I, I would say a lot of men, if I use that, if I said that, that I'm thinking of, they'd probably say, yes, yeah, feels yeah. like that yeah. in a way. And, or, you yeah. know, it's like a death trap, right? It's, I've heard other things said by them and, and, you know, dare not do that. You know, it's, you're just then asking for excommunication or punishment or something to the effect or yeah. more suffering, yeah. more pain. Why would I want that? That doesn't sound fine to me. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard because I think we're still seeing it. We're still seeing this stuff passed around. I mean, I didn't, I didn't realize that I wasn't looking at the New York times, but it's interesting that, wow, it's, these things are being tossed around to this day. And so yeah. I think, we're still seeing all the conflicting message in, in society that I think you see a lot of people, men that have influence saying, Hey, get therapy. It's okay. And I think that's huge. I would say men of yeah, I mean, influence it's, it's and like, power, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, again, even why, why it's in the news is because gender is, is very political, right. Mm-hmm. And masculinity is very political mm-hmm. and we're in campaign season and, mm-hmm. you know, essentially kind of, showing one's toughness and showing again for the majority of candidates who are male right what they're going to show is kind of a a more stoic very traditional type of masculinity right and some have even written books on it that have actually very little to do with science but they present a blueprint this is how men should be the reality is is that anytime you create a blueprint and the blueprint is you know essentially let me tell you how men are supposed to be it's going to be wrong (laughs) Because because men aren't supposed to be anything, you know. You know what men are supposed to be is human, mm. and 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 it doesn't mean like I don't mean that mean that that you shouldn't be proud of being a man because I think there's something very beautiful about having kind of kind of male pride in a way that that is inclusive and not mm. not not tran- transgressive and like I think you should have a healthy idea of what it means to be a man because if your identity if that's an important part of your identity, again, this is where the toxic piece comes in too. It's like, if masculinity is toxic, then it's hard to have any type of pride in being like a good father or being a good man or, you know, and I think it sends a wrong message, right? Because it's not the message that I think that a lot of men experience because for a lot of men, like being a guy is important, right? And a lot of the men I know being a guy, isn't about 
getting over in other people. You know, it's about being a good person. It's about being being values driven. It's about having having purpose in one's life, right? And I think even like you know, when I think about the work that we're doing at Mental, like we're really trying to think about that. Like that's part of the third way too. The middle way is to understand kind of values and purpose and live with them, right? Live with honor and, and integrity and know who you are. Yeah, yeah. I think the third way is needed to keep paving the way and creating space for that. And I like how you put it that there's masculinities. And forming to some of the traditional norm is good as long as it's adaptable within what's needed in the context, whether it's at work or with your family or your kid or your partner or your buddy, whatever it is. That Absolutely. Is, yeah, I think that's going to zing some people, but I think you're right because it, because you could full, you're going to have a, a spectrum of masculinities, right? And so because Absolutely. of that, we have to allow some of those traditional norms of looking at the good of some of these more traditional traits that... They're not bad. They're not evil. You know, they're not wrong. But if they're rigid, they're going to lead to problems. If they're yeah, adaptable, yeah. they'll lead to probably life and, and actually good models, um, yeah. right? Good, good, a, a model of what a masculinity could look like where maybe someone, another masculinity expression could be a little different, right? Maybe who's a little more emotional, emotionally driven. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's still I... masculine, right? It's like, that's still masculine, but there's a variance between these two. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're like you, I mean, there are different examples out there, but you know, Terry Crews, for example, like Terry Crews is great, you know, and people would consider him probably to be pretty masculine, whatever that means. Right. Mm -hmm. He's also pretty emotional, mm -hmm. also pretty big and he's pretty tough. He has a lot of muscles, you know, but he's also like, he's a great example of an, of an adaptive person, right? He is who he is. Yes, he is. He is who like, he is. He is who he is. Yeah. And I think there's something yeah. about like, what I mean by that is like, part of like the, the pillar of actually kind of kind of masculinity like like what is positive masculinity and this is some work that i've done but particularly my colleagues in australia at at brighton grammar have done is recognizing that like positive masculinity is, is like being connected right so when that we that's just a given like we know that the essence of essentially being healthy is being connected to other people so being motivated so having a purpose in terms of kind of what you're doing which is kind of value driven and it's being authentic and understanding who you are, right? And if you if you know who you are and you can you can be authentic, right? Then your behavior is going to match kind of what the situation needs, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't actually have those barriers, kind of saying, "Well, I better act this way because people are watching." Yeah, um, I'm thinking where I want to go. This I'm gonna. Cut I, this I, we've been all over the place. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> no, it's been good. It's it's a, it's. I think it's a, it's such a big conversation, and there's so many places that I want to go. Um, of like, well, I want to know more about that. And I want to know about that. And I want to talk more about adaptability because that's a great term. Um, yeah. So even like, I'll give an example. Like we look at kind of work and employment right now. And we look at, at, at the last recession, for example. And we look at kind of looking at, at men at middle age, right? We know that there are, are, are vocations out there, for example, that need men. Right. This is what Richard Reeves would call the heal professions, but most people would just say like teaching, nursing, counseling, actually. A variety of these professions have been have been trying to recruit male nurses and counselors and teachers for for decades, mostly on hmm. right. And so and we look at kind of the last recession, we know that people who were hit the hardest were actually middle aged men. And it but it wasn't because there weren't jobs out there for them. Part of it was was this inability to adapt to a to jobs that were maybe outside one's purview as being appropriate, right? And so adaptability is this trait of kind, of kind of recognizing that you can be flexible, right? And so even with parents, I think sometimes the question I would say is it's not always like, like what are you feeling, but what are you experiencing right now, right? So like you see your child and something's happening and, you know, as a counselor, I would want to say like, oh, how, how are you feeling, right? But I might just say, hey, what are you experiencing right now? What are you aware of, right? Because it's a, it's a recognition of kind of this is what you're aware of and then what does the situation require? Yeah. It's broadening it, expanding the view a bit from just an emotion to the experience, right? Because the experience could be emotion, it could be bodily, it could be a bodily experience, it could be a, a mental experience. Yeah. It could be all the above that they're aware of. Yeah. It's, it's allowing space, it sounds like, for these different these different ways of experiencing. I can't think of a word, but it, it, it yeah. allows space. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of it, it's about like options, right? But it's this yeah. notion about having this flexibility to kind of to do what the situation requires, right? Hmm. So the parallel would be, of course, it's, it's a metaphor that's used often, right? It's this notion that, you know, 
if 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 all you have is hammer, all your problems are nails, right? And the reality is, is like, you know, there's lots of other tools out there. But if all, right. again, if all you have is a hammer, then right. everything gets smashed, regardless right. if it requires that. And sometimes nuance is needed, or screwdriver is needed, or standing mm. is needed, right? Yeah. So we just want to work on some aspects of flexibility, right? Mm. And so rigid thinking has a bit to do with kind of expectations in terms of who you think you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to be that way, you know, and as parents, like part of it is just, you know, I think recognizing that, that again, if you're a parent of a, a boy or an adolescent is recognized that, that your children understand this, they mm. feel that, that pressure around them and what society is kind of saying in terms of how they're supposed to be. You know, and one thing to be aware of is that as parents, there's something about being an intentional parent, right? And what I've said to other groups before is like, whether you like it or not, society is going to have its say, right? So if society is going to have its say, you might as well have yours too, hmm. right? Because society is going to create, it's going to shape your child into a certain type of way. Unless you offer a counter narrative, right? Or a counter experience, you know, society is honestly better equipped, <laughs> I mean, social media is way more supercharged than either of us, right? The algorithms True. to kind of shape behavior is stronger than most things out there. It's hard to compete with, yeah. Right. Yeah. And if, so if you don't have a counter narrative to offer to your, your son, yeah. you know, and a nice thing about the counter narrative that parents offer is usually it can come from a safe place, you know, and I think that's part of that counter narrative. It's about, about adaptability. You don't have to be yeah. this way, right? Right. And I think it's going to come for some of the men that we work with or that I see is helping them heal a bit so they can provide that counter narrative to their kids. Cause if they're still Absolutely. stuck in their if they're still stuck in their rigid view of masculinity and maybe that's a better, better, you know, I've used the word unhealthy or I said immature masculinity. I've yeah. said it, but cause I also don't like the word toxic, but so I've used unhealthy, immature type of a way, but I like the idea of rigid masculinity. I think it's a good use of making, which makes sense. Cause if he's still stuck there, this dad I'm working with, then it's going to be hard for him, I think, to really help his son or his daughter, really any, any of his kids, how to have a good, healthy kind of balance of their masculinities or femininities, I guess it would translate into femininities yeah. too, I would assume with that yeah. word masculinities. And so he, helping him heal from some of his trauma and wounding around it and providing safe space so he can and uh, getting to know him and his story as to why he's defended himself for this long. Which in turn, as he heals, he'll be able to, be able to give that healed version to his kids, Absolutely. you know, for the next generation. Absolutely. I mean, that's really the, my heart is to help. If I could help those dads help their kids, and then it's the trickle down effect, the generational stuff. If we could help the, you know, one home, we could help, you know, five homes, ten homes, twenty, hundred homes. Man, think of all the kids that you're impacting, and then, yeah, yeah. you know, twenty, I mean, I think thirty, forty years from now, it's different. I mean, think about it with with parents, but fathers in particular. It's like you know, you either parent the way you were parented or your parent in opposition to the way you were parented, mm. right? But regardless, most parents don't get a lot of actual training. No, they don't. Right. <laughs> they don't. So, you know, like, so you may say things like, I don't want to be like my dad, so, or I want to be just like my dad, mm -hmm. right? But even regardless of those two, you know, without some type of training or some type of intervention, you're probably going to be more like your dad, you know, and essentially that's the blueprint that you kind of have, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think what you do, what others do in the work is like, provide some guidance, right, in terms of how you can actually enact kind of the type of parent you want to be, mm. right, um, and mm. how to learn kind of to do things a, a bit differently. But you're right, it's hard when, it's hard to teach your child skills that you don't have yourself. Yeah, because you're going to do what you know. Um, yeah. That's just yeah. how we work. We're gonna, especially yeah. when, especially if we're stressed out or tired, we got to get somewhere, you're going to, you're going to fall back on your skill set, whatever that yeah. skill set might be. Yeah. Um, I mean, a great example is actually, is, is like emotional regulation, right? Like how, how do you teach emotional regulation when you can't do it yourself? Well, you'll teach something, probably yelling or frustration or anger exactly. or shutting down or numbing. And so you're yeah. going to, you are teaching something, but yeah. then you go to, what am I teaching and modeling here? Well, I'm modeling, yeah. this is what you do with emotion is you regulate by yelling, screaming, you know, hitting something, throwing something, walking away, numbing, you know, whatever. So we're always teaching. So, yeah. and I think too, some of these guys get stuck in shame because then they realize, oh, I'm doing what my dad, did. for some, I'm doing what my dad did and that can make them spiral. It's like, no, I'm doing the very thing I thought I would never do. And now I'm doing the thing that I'm doing. And then, yeah, well, we could, there's so much stuff I want to talk about, but I, I'm aware of the time and I'm sure people are, this is a long episode. I'm, I'm going to have you on again. Well, I'm just saying Perfect. this because, you know, 
you're going to yeah. be. And I yeah. want to put that out there because we need more research and I would love to dive more deeply into the research and I think understanding and getting good information out there to help men and being adaptable. And so with that said, with really this whole conversation of talking about kind of your work, your expertise, your heart, your passion, talking about positive masculinity and or masculinities and really this I think really important concept of adaptability, which I can, I feel like talk about for 10 more hours and this idea of this middle ground and everything we kind of talked about tonight, if you were to kind of wrap it up and kind of give an encouragement to both men as well as maybe their partners, women, the moms in their life, what would we say to kind of help further maybe some of the healing? What can we do about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like we covered like a lot of ground tonight. And I think the reality is, is that, you know, unless you're listening to podcasts like this all the time, or unless you're a gender studies major, or unless you've been in a men's group, probably, right? Most guys have not sat around and talked about what it means to be a man. It's not a common conversation that happens in school. It's not one that happens in the locker rooms. You know, men figure out how to, what it means to be a man by having it done to them or by acting it out, mm -hmm. right? And so there often is a lot of confusion about this topic, right? So like I can critique things I see or articles I read or whatnot, but I also realize that it's a really complicated subject. And even when I get interviewed, like I, I refuse to, do an inter to give someone like a line, right. Or give them two minutes because I realize if you really want to talk about kind of masculinities or talk about men and mental health, it's gotta be a bigger conversation mm -hmm. because you have to understand context. Right. And yeah. so it is a learning process for everyone. Right. Because I think here's the thing, part of, of, of kind of oppression, right? And part of kind of this notion of kind of patriarchy, right? And and in some ways, male oppression, right? And and male privilege is essentially this way in which it it makes people not look at look at it. Like so, there's power in essentially not critiquing men. So one reason why like toxic masculinity, right, takes off and has such a strong voice is because it has to yell really loud to mm -hmm. get through the fog, right? And so, like, again, that, that's privilege for men to not essentially have masculinity or have themselves look at it or not even have guys think about what it means to be a man, right? But the reality is, is that any type, type, of, type of oppression, right, also, like, there's a duality to it, right? Mm -hmm. It's both inter and intra. So the same things that give men power are the same things that actually kill them, right? So the same things that give men power, such as aggression, anger, and violence, Right. And and to, to not ask for help and to be independent and things like this are the exact same things that lead to health behaviors that lead to men dying early. Yeah. Okay. So so the takeaway that I think which I'm actually getting to now. <laughs> no, it's good. <laughs> but, I think yeah. you're thinking, the context is so key. It is such a big topic. We have there's a lot we have to talk about and so much we still haven't yet because it really yeah. requires a lot. You're right. It requires so, a lot. And I yeah. and I think even like when you were in my classes too, it's like I tend to talk really broad first. And I think if you understand the broader piece, then the micro stuff makes a lot more sense, mm -hmm. right? But again, the reality is, is most people don't take a nuanced approach, right? Mm -hmm. Another thing here too, we all have biases. Like we all have biases about gender, right? I mean, someone's kind of, you know, the, when you see someone, the first thing you notice is if, is if they're male or female. That's the first thing you see when you see someone, you know, and, and now it may be, are they male? Are they female? Are they non-binary? But non-binary is not coming up fast for most people. It's actually male or female. And then everything else loads on top of that. Mm -hmm. Then you see height and weight and age and sex and, and race and ethnicity and all kinds of things. But gender is an organizing principle in society, right? Mm -hmm. And it is embedded. And, it's, and in some ways, our ideas are rigid. So we have to actively combat them. But here's the thing that's really interesting. There is an you know, 50 plus years of research on gender and, and, and on masculinities, right? What we know from all these different kinds of scales that are out there, right? Is that most men are in the middle. Most men on, on measures of masculinity are not rigid or are not extremes, right? They are in the middle, right? Imagine like, a, like a normal curve, right? Most guys are in the middle. Okay. However, the research also suggests that most guys think they're not as masculine as they ought to be. Right. And 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 most guys, when they see other other men, think they're the least masculine guy in the room. So you wonder why when guys get together, they do stupid things. 
right? It's because they don't realize they're probably most in, mostly in the middle. They're all obsessing or they're all assessing the other people around them and thinking I'm not enough. So I have to perform my masculinity to prove that I'm okay. I see this in men's groups all the time. Yeah. Initial men's therapy groups, it takes three, four or five weeks before the guys finally figure out they're all kind of in the middle. And then the performing for each other stops and they start being real. And I, and I, the reason why I think this is a nice take home message is that, is that it helps us not see every guy as an extreme, right? Yeah. Most guys are in the middle. So most guys are actually, you know, relatively flexible in how they kind of do, or they'd like to be more flexible and they have emotional capacities and they have this ability to be kind and they have this ability to be compassionate and they have this ability to want to give and help, right? Not everyone is a menace right? Or, or trying to get over on someone kind of else. And so I think it helps us kind of see the humanity in, in, in men a lot more, you know, and yeah. I think when we do that, it also helps reinforce this notion that we expect guys to be right. If we, so if we understand guys are in the middle and we begin to see guys that way, we don't expect the edge hmm. on the edge of that kind of very rigid traditional kind of way of being. Yeah. So I think that's a helpful kind of piece to kind of like, just think, huh, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. What a great way to end this, this, this part one of who knows how many parts, but part one of the research shows that most men are in that kind of middle and yeah. not rigid. And I think is such a contrast to really so much of what we see in media and social media and the news is that they, and that's the thing we live in such a binary world of like left or right or this or that. So we, I think in some ways it sells papers and gets people peaked, but I think it also, I think doesn't really do justice to what's really going on and creates more dissonance, more disconnection rather than building bridges. I think it's more about bridge burning and not really yeah. actually doing something positive about it. It's just like, well, here's all the, again, going back to what we talked about, here's all the junk, here's all the toxic, toxic quote stuff rather than, I know actually a lot of men are here. There's a lot more and we need to see their humanity, even though I would, I would argue even those guys on the extremes, we need to see their humanity. Absolutely. Um, like, Absolutely. Because there's a reason why they're doing that. And we can still yeah. disagree with their behavior and still say that's not okay. It's wrong. It's not. It's hurtful. But there's a humanity in there that I think is still being missed. Is I would argue is probably why they're so stuck. Not as a not to say that they're doing it because of that. That's the only reason. That's it. Because there's plenty of men that have been harmed that don't do these things. But still, we got to see all of our humanity because at the core, yeah. that's what we need. That's yeah. how we heal. Is the humanity of one person. And going back to what you said earlier, it's about connecting to the man in front of you. How are you connecting to him? Because if yeah. you're not connecting to him and his humanity, he's not going to come back. He's not yeah. going to make a difference. Yeah. yeah. Matt, I thank you. My, my mind's, I have like a thousand questions. And so, <laughs> and, and I'm going to wrap it up, but thank you for having, beginning this Absolutely. really big conversation and sharing some of your thoughts on this and some of your research. And yeah, we're going to have more and I'll line up some more ideas about it, but thank you. Have an, have an awesome night. And if, if people wanted to know more about what you're doing, the work you're doing, research, is there any way they could find you out there? I mean... Where would that be? And they can probably find me on, on the Cal State Fullerton website or the Department of Counseling under the Center for Boys and Men. But I also would say, check out the mental app. It's a good place to kind of find some support. And, and it's again, it's a, it's, a, it's a way that we're working to kind of meet guys where they are and, mm -hmm. and offer support. I'm going to drop all that in the uh, comments, the comment section, the description, everybody, all these links directly to this and to the map, app itself. And um, everyone have a good night. And thanks again, Matt, for being on. Thanks a lot, Travis. Take good care. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review the show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone. <laughs>